You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. When God saves us, uh, He not only saves us into His family, He saves us to become part of a family, a spiritual family, part of a group of believers that gathers together to, to worship God, to learn His Word, celebrate baptism and communion. Um, encourage one another, send out missionaries, serve the community, all as a, a body of believers gathered together. And this gathered people, of course, is called the church. Scripture calls us not only to be a part of a church, but to be committed to the church. And the reason is, is because Christ is committed to the church. And if we're his followers, we're his disciples, we follow in his footsteps, and we're going to do what Jesus does. And we're going to have as important in our life what is important to Jesus. And so because Jesus, Ephesians 5, is committed to the church, so should we be. And basically that's what membership is at Grace Family Church. It's saying, I love this church, not because it's perfect, not by any means, but I love it because Christ loves it. And I want to express that love through my commitment to this body of believers for the cause of Christ. And so that's why we have membership. That's why we do an introduction to membership class, which is coming up on the 16th of April, the week after Easter, following our morning service, about a half an hour after the service. It takes about an hour and a half total. We serve lunch. We do child care. It's a fun gathering. You get to meet people. And uh, it's kind of an introduction to our values, our core values, what's going on at Grace, what makes us tick, our history, our, our mission, and our, our governance, and how you can be a member. So again, that's on April 16th. And if after taking that class, you decide, you know, I want to become a member at Grace, you would follow through then with the, the next uh, step, which is to join one of our six-week core values small groups. And in those small groups, we each week watch a video on one of our core values, and then we kind of talk about it with one another. And it's a great way, really, to learn of what would take you a long time to learn about the church in a short while, and also to develop some, uh, some really good friendships so again, then um, that's going to start on April 26 and run six consecutive weeks. So back to the intro class, April 16th, you got to sign up if you want to be a part of it so we know, so we can prepare. Um, and you can sign up on the Church Center app under events. You can sign up on the website under events. Or you can see uh, Susan this morning at the children's check-in counter and she'll take care of you. Let's, uh, let's pray over our offering today. Father, you have been so faithful to us and... Uh, and that faithfulness is seen most gloriously in, in your Son for, given for us on the cross. Such an expression of your love for us, the gift of eternal life, salvation, justification before you, the right to come before you and to praise you, to have all of our sins forgiven and inheritance awaiting for us in heaven, and the promise of your strength in this life and the, the hope to come, so many more blessings, all of them from you. And you're faithful, God, to give them to us. And so in return, we are faithful to you to give, to express our love, our return love for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right. Um, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to verses, chapter, or sections of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. First of all, Matthew 21 and then also Psalm chapter 8, Matthew chapter 21, and uh, the 8th Psalm. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning 
is the story of um, what is known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which is commonly known on the church calendar as Palm Sunday. So, happy Palm Sunday. Um, it was, of course, the final week of his mission, which, uh, according to Luke 19, was to seek and to save the lost. And we call this final week the Passion Week. It begins with this entry into Jerusalem we call Palm Sunday. Upwards of a million people had come to Jerusalem um, for the Passover feast, the yearly Passover feast. And this particular year, there was a, a, a palatable expectancy there, um, just in the air. Because after three years, Jesus' ministry had reached its zenith with an exclamation point not many days prior to this with the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which the Bible tells us caused many, many more people to believe that Jesus was, in fact, Israel's long-promised Messiah. John tells us in his gospel that there were many more who came to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. John chapter 11, because they knew, according to Zechariah 9, that when the Messiah did come, he would appear first in Jerusalem. So basically, the question was among the crowds, will Jesus show up? And when Jesus finally did enter Jerusalem, he did so riding on a colt to the praises of thousands who laid their garments before him and tossed palm branches before him in a, in a kingly processional, as they had done for their uh, ancestor kings of old. Palm branches were also waved in the air, and as they did it, they were shouting from Psalm 118. Uh, it says, Hosanna, or God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a messianic psalm. Little did they realize that in that very messianic psalm that they were shouting out, singing out to him, in that same song there was also a prediction that the Messiah would be rejected. And not many days after this, Jesus became the stone that the builders rejected. And the cries of Hosanna gave way to the cries, crucify him. Now providentially, at that very moment that Jesus was entering Jerusalem, at that very moment he was making his public appearance, the chosen Passover lamb that year was being publicly displayed at the temple. And in just a few days, the high priest would symbolically transfer the sins of the people to this substitute animal to once again avert divine judgment for their sin. Sin would not fall on them, but instead would pass over them by the mercy of God. And this animal would take the penalty in substitution. But we know this lamb could never really take away sin or satisfy the requirements of a just and holy God. It was just a symbol, a foreshadowing of another lamb, an ultimate lamb that would one day come, God's lamb. Jesus of Nazareth. And God's Lamb had not come to Jerusalem to be praised or to be lauded as a king. That will be reserved for His second coming. In this first coming, He had come to fulfill prophecy and complete the purpose that was given to Him from eternity past and confirmed by the 
angel to Joseph before he was born, who said, You shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. The text again is in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And again, Hosanna means basically salvation or save us right now. They were shouting that basically God's salvation had finally come. They were thinking this is certainly a prophet or probably the Messiah himself, the Redeemer, the King of Israel who would defeat the enemies of God. And most of the people, of course, including the disciples, thought those enemies were Roman occupiers and that Jesus would use his miraculous powers to rid Israel of these Roman oppressors and restore their national identity. They were right that he was the promised redeemer, but they were very wrong about how he would redeem. He wasn't coming to conquer Rome. He was coming to conquer what separated mankind and God. He was coming to conquer sin. Verse 10 goes on to say, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee. And then Jesus acts with some amazing, amazing authority. Verse 12, he enters the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And this was a supernatural event. Nobody stopped him. You know, there were temple guard there. They didn't stop him. There were many merchants who were going to lose a lot of money and none of them stopped him because they were, they were kept from stopping him because this was a supernatural event, a supernatural cleaning out of the house of God. Verse 14 continues, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of the day, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying, these children? Now up to this point, the chief priests and the scribes certainly didn't like Jesus, were very angry, or even plotting for some time now 
how they could murder Jesus. But when the children, when the children joined in and called him the son of David, a title for Messiah, these religious leaders became indignant. You might say catatonic. And so they demanded and they asked Jesus, do you hear what they are saying? In other words, Jesus, tell them that you are most certainly not the Messiah. Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. And when he said yes, he was saying, I approve of what they are saying. They are not mistaken. I am the Messiah. And of course, that was blasphemy to these religious leaders. But then he says something else right on the heels of that. He quotes from the 8th Psalm, chapter 2. He says, have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? This, of course, is a, where we get the English figure of speech or idiom from, out of the mouth of babes. Right? We get lots of idioms from the Bible. A lot. There really is. Drop in the bucket, fly in the ointment, thorn in your side, sign of the times, writing on the wall, skin of your teeth, many more. And of course, this one, out of the mouth of babes, which, which basically has been used in our culture for a long time to point out when a young child or a, a, a baby speaking, at least old enough to speak, says something Simple and yet very profound and often hilarious. That's what the phrase means in our vernacular. But that's not what it meant in Scripture. It means something entirely different. And to understand that, we need to go back to the source of this phrase, which is, in fact, Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2. Let's read, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a familiar psalm made very familiar years ago by a Christian song that was very popular. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now to understand the phrase out of the mouth of babes in verse 2, we need to first understand verse 1, which begins with two names of God. It, it says this in the English, O Lord, our Lord. Now those two words for Lord are not the same in the original text, which was Hebrew. Literally, to make a long story short, it reads, O Yahweh, our Adonai. Now Yahweh is, of course, the personal name of God, and it is in all translations designated in all capital letters. So every time in the Old Testament you see the word LORD in all caps, it is referring to Yahweh, the personal name of God that was first revealed to Moses when he was trying to evade the Lord's call to go down to Egypt and to emancipate the, the Israelites up out of Egyptian slavery. Moses was making all kinds of excuses to God, and here was another one. He says to him, suppose I go to the Israelites... Exodus 3, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, I am who I am is from the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh. 
Yahweh means the self-existent one. The absolutely existing one. The one who simply is. Who did not come into being and does not go out of being. The one who never changes his being. The one who depends upon nothing for his existence. The one upon whom everything and everyone else depends upon for their existence. Yahweh. Now the second word is from the Hebrew word uh, Adonai. And Adonai means Lord, but not just Lord. It means Lord in the ultimate sense. Supreme Lord. Lord of all. And therefore, it emphasizes the, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God, and thereby clearly defines who we are in relationship to God. We are, of course, His servants. And He has outright ownership over our life and everything else on the earth and in the universe. It's His. He's Lord. He's sovereign over it all. So Adonai means absolute king, sovereign, owner of all that is. It is this name, Yahweh Adonai, then, that is majestic in in all the earth. So here's how we could loosely translate this. O absolutely existing one, upon whom everything else depends, sovereign king owner of all that it is, how majestic is your name. And then he adds this, in all the earth. In other words, there's no place on the earth where God is not Yahweh Adonai, the absolute one. He is above all things everywhere. He is the creator and the Lord of all things everywhere. In all the earth, everything depends upon Him absolutely for its existence. Nothing could exist or continue without Him. Furthermore, the psalmist says that His name, which means all that He is, is majestic in all the earth, and His glory is so great it's above all of the heavens. fills the universe. Now, all of that to understand this. Verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, look, the subject of verse 2 hasn't changed. That kind of seems odd, doesn't it, when you read those two verses back to back. Verse 1, verse 2, kind of like don't seem to fit together. Ah, but they do. Because the subject in verse 2 is the same in verse 1, the incredible greatness of Yahweh Adonai. But instead of making another direct statement about the greatness of Yahweh Adonai, the Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, in verse 2, uses an idiom to express God's greatness. Verse 2 says, from the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. Now notice the contrast here. In verse 1 we have God. We have the strongest, the wisest, the greatest. But in verse 2 we have babies who are the weakest, who have no wisdom, who are considered the least in that culture. And these babies are saying something with their mouth. And whatever they are saying is being used by God to defeat all of his enemies. They are opening their mouths and they are speaking something that is silencing the enemies of God, both human and angelic, fallen, who oppose his will. Now again, the psalmist isn't saying here that God is going to actually get some babies to accomplish his will to defeat his enemies, round up the toddlers, get a bunch of grace kids and go do his will, to defeat the enemy, right? It's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. 
that expresses God's greatness. And here's how, here's how it expresses it. God is so great that he doesn't have to use his strength to defeat his enemies, nor does he have to use human strength or sufficiency to defeat his enemies. No, Yahweh Adonai is so great, he uses the weakest of the weak, not only to accomplish his purposes and defeat his enemies, but to reveal his majesty and thereby eliminate human boasting and pride and self-sufficiency. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, God could use human sufficiency to accomplish His purposes and defeat His enemy, but He does not. Instead, He uses what human beings regard as weak so that we can see just how glorious He really is. And when we do, when we see, when we get a, a, a glimpse of how great He is, when we do that, it decreases our sense of self-sufficiency, boasting, and it increases our dependency on Him and therefore increases our joy in Him. That's when we are the happiest. I'll circle around to that again in case I was a little fast. So the first two verses of Psalm 8, we could paraphrase like this. O oh, absolutely existing one upon whom everything else depends, sovereign king, owner of all that is, how majestic is your name in all the earth? So majestic, so powerful that you defeat your enemies and accomplish your purposes, not with what is considered strong, but rather through what is considered weak. Let me illustrate that. I'll give you a football illustration. I know it's basketball. And we lost last night, didn't we? Poor Florida. <laughs> but here's, here's the football version, all right? It's like God saying, you know, my greatness as a football coach is so incredible, I'm going to win the Super Bowl with a peewee football team. <laughs> do you get it? Do you see it now? Right? And I'm, not going to do, I'm, I'm going to do that not only to magnify my majesty, and by magnifying, it means to expand, so we really see how great he really is. I'm not only going to do that to magnify my, my, my majesty, but also, and minimize human pride, but also I'm going to do it to maximize the joy of those that are on my team. Those who love me. Those who are mine. How is that? Well, when the Pee Wee football team wins the Super Bowl, I'm telling you, there will be more than joy. That's more than joy, right? It would be, there would be exceeding joy because they would know but that victory was in no way, in no way because of their own efforts or their own abilities. There's just no, nobody could make an argument, not even the best lawyer in the world. Nobody could make that argument. It's a shut and closed case. There's no way that they would think that we've done this because of our own abilities. The only, only possible answer to this 
must lie in the coach. And when the whistle is blown, they wouldn't congratulate each other as if by their own power and ability they had won the game. No, they would turn and praise the coach. Their weakness would not only magnify the glory of the coach and minimize their self-congratulations, it would also maximize their joy. Can you, can you feel the joy now in the coach at the end of the game? How did this happen? We turn around, and there he is. The Lord. This is what Paul says. And therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weakness, not my strength. So that Christ's power may rest upon me. There's a real secret here. And that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, insults, hardships, and persecutions and difficulties. For, and here's the verse we've all heard, when I am weak, then I am strong. So God's strength manifest through weakness is something that we find, we find this all the way throughout the, the Bible, including the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, which contains the testimonies of faith of uh, the faith greats, like, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, so many, so, and the list is so long, the writer goes on in verse 32 and, and, and he says, um, you know, and what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Were made strong out of weakness. And this is true of all those listed there in this chapter, but none so more, or more obvious anyway, I think, than, than Gideon who provides us with a perfect living example of this strength and weakness principle. You know, just kind of recap, God called Gideon to rescue the backslidden Israelites who are off worshiping all kinds of idols. And they were about to be attacked by a massive coalition of enemies headed up by this group called the Midianites. And the Midianites had actually driven the Israelites out of their homes into caves. They were living in caves. And uh, their land was completely plundered, all their crops, all their livestock. They lost everything. This, the situation was so dire. Finally, finally, the people repented. Why does it take so long? Ask yourself that question. <laughs> How come I didn't see this sooner? I could have avoided X, Y, Z. Thank God for His mercy, and His mercy to the Israelites right here. And so the Lord, He appeared to Gideon, and He, and he, and he told him, He said, go, I want you to go and deliver Israel. And uh, Gideon wasn't too overwhelmed uh, with the whole prospect of it, kind of like Moses, you know? So he says in, in Judges 6.15, he goes, please, Lord, <laughs> how can I save Israel? Behold, notice, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, his tribe. And I am the least in my father's house. I, as far as the societal structure, I am on the low end of the totem pole. This is not a job for me. I don't have the ability. I don't have the status. I don't have the training. I have nothing. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. That's all you need to hear, isn't it? But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. What's that mean? What that means is these thousands of soldiers will be struck down as easily as striking down one man. 
That's what God says to him. So Gideon, he goes and he destroys the altars of Baal. Apparently he got a, a pinch of courage there. He destroys all these altars of Baal and Asherah that, that the people were worshiping. He, he summoned 32,000 men, which uh, seemed pitifully inadequate to meet 135,000 Midianite trained soldiers. To his surprise, after he gets done doing that, God says, uh, you got too many. He says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I, everyone who's afraid, send them home. That was 22,000. So now he's down to 10,000. He said, okay, uh, you're going to get, basically get to some water. And those who, who kneel down and drink directly from the water, send them home too. Only keep the ones that put it in their hands and, and, and lap it up. So when it's all said and done, Gideon had 300 men to face 135,000 Midianite soldiers. That's 450 to 1. Those aren't very great odds. God's strength is revealed in. So instead of, and on top of that, instead of our arming Gideon's arm, I mean, if they had some kind of real, the latest technology and weaponry, maybe, right? But not, no, not even a spear. God tells them to arm themselves with trumpets and clay jars into which they were to place flaming torches. What an absurd military strategy. That's not one that you learn at West Point, is it? <laughs> It's not on the test. Yet when the 300 men broke their jars and the fire could be seen and blew their trumpets, the Lord caused the Midianites to turn on one another, kill one another, and the very few that were left were scattered away and fled. Now think about it. Totally inadequate numbers. Totally inadequate equipment. But it was more than compensated for by the power and the wisdom of God. The utter weakness of Gideon's army became God's weapon of victory. And what are the reasons for stripping the already inadequate Gideon of all these human resources? God said it this way, in order that Israel will not be able to boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Now, this is the same reason that Paul gives in the New Testament for embracing inadequacy. So that, 1 Corinthians 1.29, no one may boast before Him. But why? Why, God? Well, because God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And if God is going to make us recipients of His grace, He must humble us, which He does by magnifying His strength through our weakness. This is the way He works. This is the way the Gospel works. This is the way the Christian life works. Not by powering up, but by powering down. Not by convincing yourself of something, but by realizing how helpless you are without the Lord. There's when the Lord comes in. There's when you hear His voice. That's when God touches you. You say, it's been a long time in prayer since I really sense God. I got one answer for you. Humble yourself. He is irresistibly attracted to humility. Say, how do I do that? You just do it. Because learning to do it is part of the humbling. Let me give you a couple of examples of this whole prayer. Anybody here at D.L. Moody? Right? Quite a guy. He did not have much of a formal education. Great beard, though. 
all the bearded guys go, yeah. <laughs> and you know what? He wasn't very intelligent either. His physical appearance was anything but impressive. And, and his voice, he had this high-pitched voice with a nasal overtone. But those weaknesses did not prevent God from using him to shake two continents with the gospel. Reporters once sent by a newspaper to cover the revival when Moody was in, in Britain, and he had this assignment. What, get a secret. What's, what is the secret behind all of this? And after considerable observation and going to many and many, many meetings, the journalist reported, I can see nothing whatsoever in Moody that would account for this marvelous work that is happening. And so when Moody read the newspaper report, he laughed and he said, well, that's the secret of it all. There's nothing that can explain it other than the power of God. The work is God's, not mine. I'm the weak. He is the strong. So the strategy of God then is to show the world that Christianity, with all of its triumphs of faith in individual lives and its collective onward mission in the world the last 2,000 years plus, in spite of great persecution in many places, that that cannot be explained by anything in man. That cannot be explained by any human virtue or any human competence or any ability. It can only be explained as the work of Yahweh Adonai who is majestic in all the earth and whose glory is above the heavens and who silences His enemies through the mouth of babes. William Wilberforce is another good example of this. He was the great Christian reformer who was responsible for ending slavery in the British Empire. And he was such a small and frail man that this was actually said of him quite often. You know, if a mild wind comes along, he might fall over. <laughs> Sounds English, doesn't it? British. If a mild wind comes along, he's going to topple. <laughs> However, after hearing Wilberforce speak, one member of Parliament said, you know, when he began, I saw what seemed to be a shrimp mount the table, the, the, the podium, right? All right? But as I listened, he grew, and he grew until the shrimp became a whale. That's God. Now look, at, God wants to use your life for his purposes, and not in spite of your weaknesses, not in spite of your limitations, not in spite of your inadequacies, but because of them. Did you hear that? But because of them. They qualify you in this kingdom, not disqualify you. For his power is made perfect in weakness. He accomplishes his plans through what human beings would consider weaknesses to magnify his majesty, to magnify our joy in him. And that is nowhere more apparent than in the cross of Christ. With that in mind, let's go back for the rest of the story in Matthew 21, okay? So we left off, right, with the religious leader saying to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. And then he said this again, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So, 
Jesus basically says to the chief priests and scribes, now these were the Bible scholars of the day, the Bible teachers of the day. He goes basically like this. You guys know your Bible. I don't have to tell you. You know, does the, does the weakness and, and the folly and the insignificant of children lifting up their voices to me and singing, does that, does that ring a bell? Does that remind you of a scripture anywhere? Doesn't it remind you uh, of Psalm 8? And who is Psalm 8 about? Well, it's about Yahweh Adonai. What was Jesus saying to them? I am Yahweh Adonai, whose name is majestic in all of the earth, whose glory is above the heavens. And this is the way I magnify my majesty, not by entering Jerusalem on a chariot with an entourage of VIPs and dignitaries, but on a donkey accompanied by a choir of children. As it turns out, the strength that God has ordained from the mouth of babes in Psalm 8-2 finds its highest fulfillment in the children's praise of Jesus in Matthew 21. It's not the, the, the speeches of the elite religious establishment that Jesus uses to announce his arrival or entry into Jerusalem, but the, simply the, the praises of lowly children. And this is how Yahweh Adonai does things. This is how the Lord does things to eliminate human boasting, to magnify his majesty and therefore maximize the joy of his followers. Think about it. The majesty and strength of King Jesus was magnified or made more visible through weakness when he made himself nothing. And he took the very nature of a servant and he was made in human likeness, Philippians 2. God, the one who said, light be, became a man. And he entered the world not through a queen of some great kingdom, but through an unknown peasant girl. Not in a palace, but in a stable. Not in a royal bassinet, but in an animal feeding trough. The majesty and strength of King Jesus were magnified through weakness when he allowed himself to be arrested in the garden, even though he said he could call basically 72,000 angels in his humanity and be delivered. His strength was magnified through weakness when he refused to defend himself before Pilate. Isaiah prophesied he didn't open up his mouth like a lamb led from the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. As a sheep before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And finally, the majesty and strength of King Jesus was magnified through weakness when he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So through his self-imposed weakness, he magnified his own majesty. Christ the King looks weak and foolish riding into Jerusalem on a lowly animal to the praise of children. And even more, Christ the Savior looks weak and foolish hanging on a tree. 
But all of Scripture aims to teach us that God is so glorious that He uses not strength, but weakness to accomplish His plan. Out of the mouth of babes, He establishes strength. Jesus embodied in Himself God's strength magnified in weakness. God's victory achieved through childlike lowliness and humble servanthood. And if we are His followers, if we are His followers, we'll follow His example, we'll follow His footsteps. This is the example He left for us. And if we would have a strong Savior, we must embrace the humility of a crucified Savior, a crucified Christ. And if you would be strong in your Savior, then you have to follow Him in the weakness of a dependent child. For when you are weak in yourself, then you are strong in the Lord. And listen, if you have really yet to know Him, you must. You you, you must become weak in yourself. Like one of those little children who called out, Lord, save me. That's what it takes. Lord, save me. It is a a step of faith, of humble faith. It says, I need what you did for me on the cross. And Scripture says, when we come to God that way, the Scripture says, He will in no way cast us out. All who call upon the name of the Lord in that humility will be saved. But it's that step of humble faith of believing the gospel, that Christ died on the cross for our sins, that He, like that lamb for Israel on the Passover, took the penalty of sin for us in our place as our substitute. That's the love of God for us. Instead of judging us for our sin, He judges the substitute, the perfect one, the only one who had never sinned. He died. He rose again. The Bible says if we believe that, we will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a moment of simple faith. It's it's not a, a religious assumption. I've come to church. I've been thinking about this. I, uh, I'm curious. There's another step after that. There's a step of faith. It's a step of humble faith. That faith, the little children's on the side of the road. Hosanna. Hosanna, Lord, save me. Save me. Save me now. Save me now. That's what Hosanna means. That's Palm Sunday. Save me now. You're here this morning. Maybe that's you. Say, save me now. I want to lead you in a confession of of faith, of of belief in that. It's in your heart. God's already working there. He's prepared you for this. It's just now's the moment. Now's the moment when you verbalize it. When you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Let's do it together, all right? Maybe some of you for the first time. I believe in Jesus Christ that He died on the cross for my sin. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. I believe in you. I'm your child now. From this day forward, I'm going to serve you. Amen.